Welcome back to the Own Your Potential podcast, where you'll hear stories from leaders across the globe about how they've taken control of their career growth and lessons on how you can too. I'm Peter Sherba, and today I'm very excited to be sitting down with Lena Parmar, founder of Citrus Connect Recruitment, an award-winning entrepreneur. Lena, very excited to have you on the podcast today. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Why don't we just jump right into it? Can you take us through your career journey leading up until this point? It feels like such a long journey, Peter, but absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here also. Um, I guess my journey starts way before I even was born. You know, my parent and my grandparents from my paternal side were both entrepreneurs. So I don't know if it's genetic, if it was in my genes, but I knew from a really young age that I wanted to have my own business. What that looked like in that moment in time, I didn't really know, but I knew that I wanted to own my own business and have my own message for the world, for the economy, and make an impact in in my own way. My grandfather and my father had failures as well as successes. And what's happened, I think, in my entrepreneurial journey is I've learned more from my dad's failures than I have from his successes. The the most important thing I think that my parents taught me was a strong work ethic and discipline. Right. You know, my dad owned a corner shop, you know, typical immigrant family, corner shop in the UK. That was my family. And when you have a news agency like my dad did, you know, the only day off my dad got was Christmas Day. Right. We worked. I saw my dad work every single day. And as a family, always got really excited about Christmas Day because it was the only day that we would have off as a family and and have time as a family to spend together. So I grew up not accustomed to holidays. I grew up where I was working with my dad in the shop from the age of seven or eight. So I knew early on in life what work meant and what what work ethic was. You know, I understood the concept that you have to work for money because you physically see it in the shop, don't you? People give you money and you're working. So that concept for me was ingrained in such a young, young age. So I definitely learned a, a strong work ethic from my dad. And I also learned from my parents' discipline. You know, it takes discipline for my dad to wake up at four o'clock in the morning and work till 8 p.m. at night. Right. That takes discipline. It takes courage. It takes grit. It takes hard work. And, you know, it's funny, really, because nowadays we talk about working smart. You know, that's like the buzzword. Work, work smart, not hard. And I have to say, my dad didn't necessarily work smart, but he 100% worked hard. Right. You know? And I learned hard work. and And I think... Now, as an entrepreneur, I I hope people would agree that I work smart and hard congruently and holistically, which makes me the entrepreneur that I am today. Right. But I definitely learned hard work and discipline from a very, very young age. I think the the downside of that, because there always is a downside, you know, There's there's a downside to every upside, is that did I miss out on my childhood is a question I always ask myself. Right. You know? um, I mean, I didn't learn to swim properly until I was an adult, you know, just silly things like that, which 
you take for granted as a child, but when you grow up in a in a in a household like I did, work always came first, the shop always came first before anything. And my parents at times did struggle financially. So as a child watching my mum and dad work, how comfortable was I as a little kid asking for for them to spend money on swimming lessons or or something like that, you know? So I learned very quickly the value of money. Right. And I, I do feel like the downside for me was missing out on, on my childhood. Um, you know, and I had to train myself in my adult years how to have fun. Right. You know, like I said, we weren't accustomed to holidays. I think I had my first holidays when I was when I was in my early twenties because we just didn't have the time to, to go on holiday, you know? So I'm not saying that my, you know, childhood was bad. There was so many great things from it, but I think the skills and the values that I learned as a child most definitely has impacted my entrepreneurial journey. I hope in lots of good ways, but I've had to then retrain myself in so many ways to have fun, to relax, you know? I I never saw my mum and dad relaxing. So for me, it wasn't a thing. I've had to train myself as an adult. What's my definition of success? And how do I want to relax? What's my definition of relaxation? Because I never saw my parents do it. But what it did do for me is, you know, I wanted to earn my own money. I was rewarded financially from my parents by working in the shop, but I wanted this experience somewhere else. So as soon as I was old enough to be able to work, I found my first job and that was working in the fashion industry within retail. And what my what growing up in an entrepreneurial family has done for me is I learned the four pillars of being an employeepreneur very, very young. And I didn't know that was, that is what I was learning at that time, but I learned what it takes to what I call now an employeepreneur. Right. You know, at the age of 17, I was managing a huge floor within the one of the biggest retailers within our city. I was managing people older than I was. In my early 20s, I was a key holder for a multi-million pound business. I developed training programs for new starters and was personally responsible for their development. Like this is talking like when I was 18, 19, early 20s. Yeah. So it this childhood that I had just really impacted not my entrepreneurial journey, but just my journey to to employment and to gainfully um, upskill myself in necessary skills in the marketplace. You know, I was groomed to be that employeepreneur. And because of that, I moved through the ranks really, really quickly. Right. So at the age of 22, I was traveling the world with my fashion career and really managing a, a large geographical territory. And from the outside looking in, it looked like I was hugely successful, but it's taken a lot of grit and rigor to, to get there. And the foundations of that was most definitely my mum and dad giving me the skill set of skills that they gave me, for sure. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, it's, it's a pretty common story, uh, for folks to, that come from kind of an immigrant background where there's a relatively humble beginning and that kind of that grit, that hard work, discipline, you know, not necessarily having a 
quite significant imbalance in terms of work-life balance. You know, I don't know that that was even a term for folks uh, like, like, for example, your parents, but I also come from an immigrant background. My parents came over to Canada from, you know, communist Poland in, in 1988, 89, right? Like as, as that was coming down. So like, I mean, work-life balance didn't really exist on the communist block, right? Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. It was just work. And so I think that's a really interesting, um, you know, sentiment that, to witness that sort of 4 a.m. to 8 p.m. And, you know, when you run kind of like a corner shop like that or kind of an, a, biz, a small business like that, there's also work outside of that 8 p.m., right? That Because that's just the management of the shop while you're there, right? And so it is really like your life's work at that point, right? And it's to, to be part of that and part of that environment is obviously hugely shaping. And so you know, as you obviously extracted those values, you immediately wanted to go into the workforce to kind of prove yourself and kind of earn your own money, understanding the value of money, incredibly valuable lessons, right? Um, and I think they're, for example, different than necessarily the the way that I learned from my own parents, because my parents didn't own a business, let's say. they. My dad worked uh, and continues to work in a hospital as a chief technologist, right? Um, but uh, for overseeing a, a kind of dialysis unit. So like, that is a very different type of work. And, you know, I didn't see him necessarily bringing work home. Right. Mm-hmm. And so then when we, when he was home, it was a very, it was a bit of a different situation than like what you're describing. So yeah. there's almost a little bit more balance in that sense. I'm curious though, like, as you stepped into your twenties, you have a career that's growing, um, you know, and then I, I think I want to talk about this once you describe your kind of entrepreneurial story since then, right. How has your kind of approach to, um, work-life balance and kind of reward through relaxation, let's say evolved from, uh, doing it for yourself once you were working in your career to then having to establish that culture for your organization down the line, once you started your own. With great difficulty <laughs> yeah. is what I would say, but it's something, like I said, I've had to train myself. And I think that's where mentors have come in because right. they've, they've taught me the importance of rest. Right. You know, it's, it's actually a cultural thing. Um, it's a spiritual thing is rest and, and the importance of, of sleep. But I think where it's really made an impact in my personal life and therefore then the, the, the life of the, the staff that I lead is when I embarked upon my health journey. Mm. You know, when you start lifting weights, when you start working with a PT, when you start eating good, there is such an importance of sleep and rest to recover. Right. And I'm a science, I'm, you know, I'm quite facts based minded. Um, I'm a numbers girl. I, I track everything. And, and when it, when somebody explained it like that, I was like, Oh, okay. So it's physically beneficial for me to rest. Right. <laughs> Right. And then I started seeing the, the, you know, the mental benefits of rest and then the emotional benefits of rest. And I think for me, it started with my health and fitness journey, which right. is a whole journey in itself where I've seen the, the impact and the benefits of rest and relaxation. I still, I'm not a holiday person. You know, it's not something that I can still do today. In fact, if I went on holiday with anybody, I would be their worst nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> However, I have learned that travel for me has to be with a purpose. So for me, travel is, you know, going to another country to climb a mountain or going to India on a yoga retreat, you know, like I've done before, 
or, you know, traveling with work, but then either side of it, having a couple of days to see the city. Right. That for me is travel. And that for me is my version of, you know, rest and relaxation where other people would class it as a holiday. You know, I don't, I'm not a holiday person. So I still have a long way to go. But for me, I've defined rest and relaxation for myself. For sure. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I, I always uh, celebrate the idea of physical fitness and uh, participation in sport or, you know, some sort of like physical training, just because I think that it helps build up, you know, a number of different things, right. In terms of you challenging yourself through competition, or in this case, like through training, challenging yourself to progress. Right. And especially if you're doing it in a way where you are a numbers individual and you are tracking your progress, right. You're working towards that next goal constantly. And that is totally in line with scaling a business, working towards that next goal constantly. So if you're doing that in a couple of different facets of your life, it just starts to become part of your being. And I think that that's a really valuable thing because, you know, I, I, I do think that personal life, work life, there's very much a continuum there, right? Especially in today's world, particularly if you're an entrepreneur, right? Mm. Those things are one and the same. Mm. And I, I I can absolutely, recognize or it certainly resonates with me this idea of even when taking rest having that rest be productive i i I, that resonates with me hugely as someone (laughs) who also you know a lot of the time has a lot of on the go so that makes a total sense for me now i want to talk a little bit about your fashion career and the idea of starting in retail because i think that that I think is an underrated place for people to start and then develop pretty incredible business sense and, and operational management sense and, and skill sets. I spoke with another individual on this podcast by the name of Carmen. She worked in the luxury uh, jewelry industry and similarly started just, you know, working in a, in a, like a high end jewelry store and then scaled and oversaw territory and then became a big, like saw larger regions for bigger brands, et cetera. And like managing those huge floors, those employees, uh, I guess, new product, right? The logistics of all of it, right? The marketing of it, like you're running a small company or small yeah. business. I think people are, don't realize the value and the transferable skills that come out of that type of experience, particularly if you scale and become more senior in that space. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that and then how that maybe had translated into a lot of value as you decided to go down the entrepreneurial route. I think it's a nice bridge into yeah, that. Absolutely. Really interesting question. And one thing that comes to mind when when you have been kind of <clears throat> phrasing the, the question to me is your product is always people. It's mm. never your product or service. Your product is people. And my mentor said this from day one to me. And I didn't know it at the time. Like when you're 15 working in retail, you don't realize that your product is people. Right. I think what retail taught me was people skills, how to communicate with people. When you're working in retail, you are literally opening your doors to anybody, all walks of life. Those people walk through your doors and you have to communicate with them. Right. You have to become what you would call a chameleon, right? where you have to communicate at different levels, using different language. Ultimately, you know, you're, you're selling, I was selling clothes. So there was, you know, you were taught features and benefits in those days of sales, but now it's really understanding what does my customer want and how does my product or service fill that need? 
But in order for me to fill that need, I need to communicate what my product does. And I think what retail did for me at a very young age is it taught me good people skills. Right. Yeah. It taught me how to connect with people. It taught me how to fill a need that a person requires to, to be to be met. Right. And ultimately, on the flip side of it, it taught me how to manage my manager. And I think this is where there is a big misconception. Right. People feel that managers are there to manage others. I want to challenge that. I believe, and I say this to my staff today, I want you to manage me. That's when you're going to get the best out of me. You manage my expectations. And again, I didn't know this at the time, and I don't know how I did know it. And I think it's basically the foundations that my parents taught me. But I always managed my manager. There was a mentor that I like had at that time when I was working in retail. And I'll, I'll always remember Mark because he was a manager that I managed. I knew where I wanted to go, and I used to manage my own performance. I used to manage my own progression by managing his expectations. So it wasn't him managing me, telling me what he wanted me to do. I was managing him saying, right, I've done this. What shall I do now? Or I know you wanted me to do this by today, but I'm coming to challenge X, Y, Z. How would you like me to approach those challenges? These are the ideas that I've got. Is this okay? And it's always about managing people's expectations. So not only did I learn how to communicate with the customers coming in through the door, but I think my retail um, experience encouraged me to manage my manager, manage my progression and manage my own performance. Yeah, absolutely. I think the communication piece is super key. And I agree that the diversity of communication skills that you have to develop, this idea of being a chameleon uh, in a space like retail or in a space like customer service, or, you know, I work, for example, I have a nonprofit that I run and it deals with people in athletics, right? And that's at the amateur level. And so there's people from all walks of life. Not all of them have corporate backgrounds, but yeah. you still have to figure out a way, right, to communicate with them, convince them of your service or of yeah. the value proposition position of your organization, right? And so from that perspective, I have found also explosive growth in my own communication skills yeah. and ability to sympathize with different sorts of people, right? From from any background, any kind of, um, you know, slice of life. And it's been very valuable. So I can absolutely um, understand that. And it, it resonates with me hugely. And then this idea of kind of managing up also, I think is a really important thing for people to walk away from. And as you described that, uh, to me, a big part of it is the idea of being proactive, right? Whether, you know, proactively managing expectations, proactively communicating what expectations you have of your own career growth or yes. paths, right? I think, you know, as if you're waiting and you're leaving your opportunities in the hands of somebody else, right? Yeah. You're going to end up being disappointed, right? And I Absolutely. think that the collision of, of you managing up, setting those expectations for what you expect out of your career and also managing the expectations of what they kind of yeah. are asking of you huge. And that's in any environment, retail, yeah. corporate, legal, I, you know, work in a hospital. I think it's critical. I, I say to my staff, you know, if I'm asking you for an update, it's too late. I should have the update before I've even asked for it. Right. Exactly. You know? So it's, it's always about managing your manager. Same as, as I work with my clients, you know, my clients say they want to grow their team by X amount of heads. 
if I don't manage their expectations of the time frame, we're, ch- we're struggling with this. This is what we're finding challenging. Can you help us handle this objection? How can we work as a team? Right. It's a two-way thing, isn't it? Right. Exactly. So from here, I'd love to, okay, so you've obviously, you had a lot of success. You scaled your career in, in fashion. You were very driven. And then from there, obviously, there's an inflection point. You make a transition. I imagine it took some time. You had a vision for your idea for, for, for the business that you ended up starting. Talk a little bit about that process, shaping the idea, um, getting it to the point that you were willing to make a jump into to starting your business and kind of what you've done since then. Yeah. You know, they say all good things come to an end. <laughs> um, and that's what really happened with my fashion career. You know, I find myself in a situation where I'd lost my job. Um, and I don't know if anybody else has been in those depths of despair, not knowing what to do with their life. But I was definitely in that position. Fortunately for me, I saw a gap in the recruitment marketplace. Right. Um, And that was the gap to serve um, clients who were looking for a self-employed direct sales force. And with no experience, Peter, absolutely no experience in recruitment, apart from the recruitment experience that I'd gained within the retail um, career that I had, but just a, a heart and a desire to serve my clients and see and fulfill this gap in the marketplace, I embarked upon my entrepreneurial journey. I started my business in my spare bedroom. I found a launch client who was the Automobile Association. And within 18 months, we grew their sales force by over 200%. Now, as we've already established, I'm a numbers girl. So I tracked absolutely everything. And what we ended up doing was perfecting a recruitment process that was simple, easy, and efficient for them as a client and for the candidate as well to ensure that they were getting the right people and that they were achieving the business growth that they had planned to achieve. Right. So it wasn't planned. (laughs) It was just, it just happened. I didn't know anything about the marketplace. It was just my desire and my heart to serve. So talk a little bit about the specific kind of gap that you identified, right? How exactly was it that you identified it, right? So, you know, you obviously you are in a position where your previous role, it came to an end, unfortunately, and now you're kind of looking for that next opportunity. And in the gap that you identified this, um, this idea of filling that self-employed work sales workforce, right. In the recruiting space, was it through your search for your next opportunity that you identified that? And, you know, what, how were you seeing, for example, that there was that opportunity? Cause I think certain people out there right now, whether they're employed or not, right. Might have an idea, but they don't necessarily know what the market size is, right. How do they, uh, you know, decide that the opportunity size there is large enough to pursue the idea, right? I think helping, help me understand how you work through that process, not necessarily having entrepreneurial experience in that space. I think that'd be a really valuable p- thing for people to hear about. I'm not sure you're going to like my answer, Peter, but I'm happy to answer it. Fair enough. <laughs> I'm, my personality is I believe I can always do things better. Got it. <laughs> so I saw the gap. I did a little bit of research that there wasn't many companies doing it and the ones that were doing it weren't doing it very well. And ultimately, I just thought, I I can do it better. And I literally just went and did it. There was no structure. I mean, I know I'm facts and figures girl, 
But ultimately, the driving force was my desire to do better than what's already out there. Right. Yeah. No, I th- and so I love that confidence. I think it takes that kind of confidence to be an entrepreneur, right? Uh, to believe very strongly both in your own capability and in the idea. So you, you obviously, you have success with your initial client. So then how, how did you as an individual translate that success to, to obviously subsequent clients and then scaling your organization to kind of its size today? And maybe you can talk a little bit about that journey. Absolutely. I mean, it was a scary journey and it happened slower than it should have done because there, is a, there was an element of me that was gripped by fear as well. You're always safe in your spare bedroom, working by yourself. As soon as you have to start employing people, it becomes more scary. And I take that responsibility on my shoulders very seriously, that I am responsible for your welfare. Right. So I moved into some offices. I got my first employee, then my second employee. We moved into some bigger offices. At that point, we were growing our client base because we had the results now. We could show potential clients that we've got the database, we've got the results. Now we can we can help you as well. So we just grew from there really one by one by one. And now we're at a place where we are well known in the marketplace for the recruitment of self-employed direct salespeople. I mean, as a company, we recruit for all types of sales roles across the board, whether that's telesales, field sales, digital sales. But we do have that particular niche in self-employed direct sales. And that's what we are known in the UK for. So it was a slow growth. It was a one by one by one growth. Right. But what we have done is we've gained so many stories from that. My diligence to produce results was my driving force throughout the whole of this journey of scaling up. I didn't want to scale up so quickly where we lose quality. Right. I wanted to maintain the quality, maintain the results, and I grew slowly, rightly or wrongly. You know, some entrepreneurs will will be saying, well, you could you could scale a lot quicker. But for me, my definition of success in that moment was growing slowly, one employee at a time, without compromising the quality of the service that we are providing to our clients. And today, you know, we have testimonials, our Google reviews, if you have a look, you know, there's so many great things that people say about our service, but I don't believe that I would have been able to maintain that level of service had I have scaled up too quickly. Maybe I could have, maybe I couldn't have, but um, that was the main reason for for having that slower growth. Now we're at a position where we have cash flow, we've got, you know, some stability in the marketplace, we know what we stand for and we can scale up and that is the plan going forward. We've created um, a Citrus framework that we use that we do a lot of consultancy with our clients as well. So it's it's growing in the right direction now and now I can say we're in a position to scale up a lot quicker. Yeah, I think that's very interesting because particularly because you use this term employeepreneur, which I hadn't heard before speaking with you. And I, I really like it because, you know, as for example, you start a business on your own, you're you're both the business owner and you're the business's first employee, employee. right? Which is yeah. like a really apt kind of description of what's happening. And I and I, I can also totally understand the idea of 
the scariness of, of kind of handing over your brand for your business to somebody else, right? Yes. And that I, I'm sure it gets easier over time, but those first couple of people that you add to your team is very challenging, right? Uh, because you have to, to your point, if your goal is maintaining quality, right? You have to ensure they're the right fit. You have to ensure that you are able to coach them correctly on what that quality means for your business. Yeah. So, I mean, talk a little bit about that piece, right? So making the leap to uh, bring somebody else onto your team, but particularly how you shaped the definition of what quality was for you, what those expectations were, because I think that's a really important thing as any entrepreneur who's trying to scale a business and grow their team uh, is a huge risk. Always. I myself, you know, have had challenges with, with my nonprofit organization where some of the people we brought onto the team, uh, they didn't pan out for us. Yeah. And the reality is, is that uh, whether it was culture, ways of working, right? They weren't either properly vetted in the moment uh, as we were bringing them on or weren't properly managed throughout early stages to ensure that they were working the way and um, adapting, adopting the culture that, that we expected them to, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'd love to hear kind of your approach to doing that because obviously uh, it's something that you did well as you scaled kind of one by one. Absolutely. It's funny, when I train my staff I, I always use the analogy of dating when it comes to recruitment. Oh, interesting. And it's not too dissimilar, Peter, really. It's you are looking for a very close, very intimate relationship with an employee. In, in our language here at Citrus Connect, we call them soulmate team members. Sorry. They have to be a soulmate team member, someone who's got a cultural fit and a value fit. I don't know if you've read the book by Don Ruiz, who talks about the four agreements, and I'm probably going to forget one of them, and, but it'll come to me. You know, it's being impeccable with your word, doing your best, not taking anything personally. And there's a fourth one, which I'll, will probably come to me in, in a moment. But those are the four pillars of what we look for. You know, it's no cattiness. It's not taking anything personally. It's always doing your best, being impeccable with your word. Though that is the foundation of our culture here. Right. And, and being an employeepreneur goes so much further than those four agreements. It goes to the value that you add in a company. Ultimately, the marketplace pays for value, and we can right. never forget that. So a, an employer is always looking for four things. Can you help them bring in new clients? Can you help them retain those clients? Can you help them reduce costs? And can you help them refer good talent? Four things. I, I believe in keeping things really, really simple. I live a very simple life and I believe in simple thinking. But I think if you take it down to those four things, that is what, in my opinion, an employeepreneur is. Yeah, I really like that. It makes it makes a lot of sense when you structure it and kind of really boil it down in its simplicity. And I'm I'm curious because you know I think there could be a school of thought around when you're in your early stages and you're trying to grow a business that you would you know prioritize let's say capability and talent above all, right? Let's say, um, but you know there is enormous value in ensuring that the culture is consistent out of the gate. Now, 
you know, culture is a tricky thing when you're a business of one, right? But as you scale from one to two to 10 to 20, et cetera, uh, I guess I'm curious, you know, at what point did you write down what the culture for your organization was? Because I think, for example, in, in, in my own experience, when, when we were, when I was kind of standing up my nonprofit, it was something that we had a vision of, but we didn't put pen to paper on until probably a year or so in once our team was, you know, 10 to 15 people. Um, and that may have actually contributed to why we had some challenges with individuals in the first place. Right. So mm -hmm. I'm curious for you, what's your opinion on, um, you know, where at, I guess in the kind of uh, timeline of, of, of starting a business and scaling a business, do you really put pen to paper around like, what is our culture? What, is, what are those values that I have to ensure every single person that I bring onto this team fit? Yeah. Personally, for me, I think I did it backwards. In hindsight, now, I would have sat down with myself and looked at my personal values. Right. And I think that's where it starts. Because you lead from the top and everything from the top drains down. So it's, it's always looking at, okay, what are my personal values? And I think that's where we should all start as entrepreneurs, as we're scaling um, a, a business. You know, one of the values that we've got here is to always stay on the offense. Mm, you will never like win in defense. It's just like any sport. If you're playing football, you know, you can't score on defense. Yeah. You can only score on offense. So one of our cultural values here at Citrus Connect is to always stay on the offense. I really like that. That resonates right. hugely for me. And I would imagine, you know, as somebody, you know, in a marketplace or a market space like recruitment, that is not a not competitive space. Yes. So from that perspective, that makes a ton of sense, right? And if you are a driven person that's trying to grow a successful business with a future state vision, that staying on the offensive, I think is, is really important. I'm curious though, you know, you channel that ethos of employeepreneur. But over time, right, as you scale your business past a certain threshold, you got to get further and further away from fingers on keys. So how did you manage that transition or are you managing that transition as you, you know, re recognize that my time is more important leading this organization versus, you know, actually sitting and doing the job that I was previously doing? Yeah. Uh, for me, I'm still in that transition period, although I'm getting better. I still have to wear 10 hats every single day. <laughs> But it, it's something where I think now, if you are an entrepreneur in that position, it's looking at the structure of your organization. For me, what I did is I made a list of my strengths and what I liked doing. I made a list of my weaknesses and what I don't like doing and created job roles based on that. Oh, I like that. There is no cookie cutter structure for a company. Don't look at the structure of Apple and Google and try and follow that because it's not going to be authentic to you. Look at yourself as a leader, which is what I did. I looked at my strengths. I looked at my weaknesses and I created a structure based on that and how I can serve my clients with their growth needs and, and what that structure looks like. Because ultimately, I'm the leader here. So I should be doing what I enjoy the most. Right. You know, and to be fair, as I've grown as an entrepreneur, I found strength in areas I didn't even know I had strength. Right. Or I found that I'm enjoying some things I thought I wouldn't enjoy. So you have to try these things and then write that list and then create a structure from there. Ultimately, 
that's how I started. And then obviously facts and figures play a part and you've got to set KPIs. You know, I'm always, like I said, I'm a numbers girl, so I track everything. And I think when it comes to the values of me personally, how I want to provide value for my clients, it's really the diligence to produce results. And I know I've said this previously, but it's it's really about the word diligent and, and about the word results. The marketplace pays for value and we can never, ever forget that. We've got to track everything. Tracking and numbers, knowing your numbers is the backbone to your framework for success for your business, whatever that looks like, even if it's a service-based business. Yeah. I, you know, it's, um, a lot of that really resonates for me because I work, for example, in, in data strategy and the kind of the management consulting industry. So I'm a data person, right? Yeah. And that's what I preach all day long. So to hear, you know, an entrepreneur like yourself in, you know, largely an unrelated space, right? In terms of what you actually do day to day, really advocating for data being the backbone to success, being able to track your numbers, demonstrate your, your kind of results as a business. Yeah, that's all enabled by having good, clean, confident data that you are the master of. And I think that that's a really valuable thing that for people to walk away from who are in the midst of scaling a, a, an entrepreneurial venture that like being the master of that data that can yes. tell that result story and show the value your organization is able to deliver is super critical. And I think I've heard this over and over again for people in various roles, whether it's in human resources, whether it's in, you know, a client partner type of role or in legal or whatever the case is, being able to show your impact Yes. Right. In a tangible, quantifiable way in today's world really, really sets you apart and matters. It's I yes. think it is what is the expectation at this point. Absolutely. And it's funny, really, because it's not a glamorous job. I remember when we first started tracking, we were tracking calls with a tally on a piece of paper. <laughs> you know, it it doesn't have to be like computerized. It doesn't have to be spreadsheets in the beginning. To get the raw data that you need in order for you to scale your business and for you to understand what it's going to take for you to scale your business, it starts at the grassroots of how many calls does it take to get one candidate interested in a job? How many interested candidates does it take to get one telephone interview? How many telephone interviews did it, does it take to get one interview with a client? And how many interviews does it, does it take to get one job offer? How many right. job offers does it take to get one candidate started with a client? That's how much detail I have gone into, into the tracking to be able to understand what activity it's going to take to scale the business to the level that I want to scale it to. What I love about that is that the way you've articulated it is you're establishing that benchmark and that funnel for yourself and your organization right up from the outset, because there's almost, and I, you know, it's, it's very easy to get, uh, fall into the trap of comparing your performance or your business's performance to, you know, let's call them industry benchmarks. Yes. The reality is though, you don't have the people that work in the companies that are setting those industry benchmarks. So set your own benchmark, you know, from time to time, looking at that reference point maybe has value, but uh, you establish your own benchmarks and you're always trying to incrementally get better against yes. those, right? Over yes. time. And so you have to recognize, okay, with the people that I have, this is what we are capable of. This is how we are performing today. Yes. Okay. So now where are the gaps? How do we then address those and yes. improve that incrementally and establish a new baseline? I think yes. that's huge. And now, so you know, part of how you do that is 
filling those gaps that I identified that I kind of mentioned. And you talk a little bit about that, uh, in, in kind of your previous answer, but I'd love to kind of talk a little bit more about is this idea of not just looking at your strengths and your weaknesses, but also looking at, well, you know, what parts of my weaknesses do I not like doing? And I think that's a really simple thought, but an important one because you have to pour so much of yourself into running a business, right? As particularly if you're also hands on keys delivering the service Mm -hmm. uh, for early on and for the time being, you have to, you know, in order for you to do all that, you have to like what you're doing. It's difficult Mm -hmm. to commit yourself and devote yourself to work that you're not enjoying. So how did you kind of determine, you know, the intersection of, of growth areas or gaps along with, I do or do not like this. And, you know, how did you decide that that was an important enough thing? Was that something that was taught to you or you kind of inherited from a mentor? Because I think it's very easy to say, I'm not good at this. I need to address it either by developing the skills or by filling the gap with an individual, right? But ensuring that both your strengths that you're leveraging and the weaknesses you're trying to address are the ones that you like actually executing. I think that's a really important thing. Yeah, absolutely. I think before I answer that, I just want to go back to the numbers of course, please. It's, it's going to answer the, this question as well. I think when you track your numbers, yes, you've got industry benchmarks. And I, and I like that you mentioned that, but they're just benchmarks. And who says that the industry benchmark is the leading benchmark? What I've realized with my own tracking is that I've been able to innovate within those numbers. That for me is where the innovation has occurred with the business, with the process, with the marketing. And I think when it comes to strengths and weaknesses and the gaps in the team and how I've developed job roles and the structure of the team hasn't necessarily come from that list of strengths and weaknesses or likes and dislikes, but it's actually come from what, where do we need to develop and improve those conversions and numbers and where do we go from there? Yeah, I think I I, I really like that. Um, and to be honest, I'm going to be taking some of this back to my own uh, nonprofit that I uh, and applying some of it. So I really appreciate it. I have to imagine that you know, being the master of your data, structuring your kind of results and impact story, leveraging that data probably lends itself pretty well to, you know, uh, securing recognition for your organization. And then there, that applies a lens of credibility over and above just demonstration of value and results. Yes. And I know that you've been able to successfully uh, achieve that for your organization. So maybe talk a little bit about like what your organization has been recognized with and you as an, indiv- an entrepreneur because I imagine that that is an accelerative uh, has an accelerative effect in terms of credentializing your your company going forward and securing business and clients. Yeah, absolutely. It plays a part, but it's not the ultimate thing. Sure, so of course. I don't want people to get the idea that it takes credit, you know, credibility in that sense to become successful. Mm-hmm. You have to start at the, at the grassroots. But for me personally, you know, I've been nominated for Business Woman of the Year. I've just been recognized as the I also 100 for the F Entrepreneur um, Organization. I have been featured in um, newspapers and, and magazines, podcasts, and all of which I'm very, very proud of. Um, and it's great for PR when it comes to um, you know, the credibility of the company and, and social proof, if you like. Yeah. But I come back to what I said before, Peter, the marketplace pays for value. Right. 
You know, what value is my company, Citrus Connect, going to add to your business growth? How am I going to help your business grow? I've done it for X company. This is the case study. Let me have a look at your business and let me help you grow. Yeah. And and for me, like social proof is great and it's great for PR and it's great for, for getting Citrus Connect out there, but nothing comes close, comes close to a, a case study. That's the real proof that a client's looking for. And the other thing, which is so much more powerful than any of this social proof, is the power of referrals. I have to say, most of my business has come from people referring Citrus Connect to their employers or to each other. It's the power of referrals. I I really love that. And even, you know, at an enterprise scale, if you think about managed services companies or like vendors that provide products and stuff like that or services for other organizations, that you know, often is a source of, of new business or business growth, right? And I guess I'm curious because some of that can happen organically if your product is, you know, so spectacular or an industry leader or whatever the case is, right? Or service. But I, I guess, are, are you also actively facilitating some of that referral? Uh, or, or has, in your case, all of it happened organically because of the results that you've been able to deliver and demonstrate? Organically because of the results. That's fantastic. And I think that's yeah. something to be so proud of. Uh, so congratulations, first and foremost. And then secondly, to your point around the social proof and kind of uh, credentializing through kind of award or, or any of that, I think to your point, right, that only has value if, you know, in in, in generating the, the eyes and the reach. Yes. But then once the eyes land on your organization, they have to see the substance and the concrete proof of, of performance, right? Yes. And so from that perspective, I think what you said is very apt, that that only has value when the results are, are there, right? And the, the yeah. I guess the impact is there. So, I mean, for me, I would love to get an understanding, right? Because it's very, you know, you have this interesting career arc, you leverage kind of your 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 heritage and the, the shaping from your family and, and kind of um, lived experience. Uh, to then propel you into the workforce, right? Then you kind of scaled your career in fashion, translated a lot of the skills you learned there uh, out of necessity into a business through kind of an opportunity that you saw. Now you've found a passion here, scaled it, grown it, found uh, you know success at the level that you're at now. What is kind of the what is the end state, right? In ten to twenty years, right? For you to look back at what you've built, um, what is your measure of success? I guess is it scale? Is it uh, level of client, right? Do you want to be able to say I I work for Fortune one hundred clients? Like, what is your meter for success for yourself, both as an individual, uh, you know, in your space, and then for your organization that you've built? In one word, Peter, it would be stories. What I love about what we do today is we change people's lives from a candidate perspective. We've given the ability for people to achieve what they would call personal sovereignty with their finances. For me, it's not about the Fortune 100. It's about how I can impact people's lives. What difference has my company made? And the difference it's made so far is I have seen hundreds of lives transformed because of the job that we found for them. I have seen lots of businesses, sales forces grow because we found them the right people. So if I can help a business grow 
with the right hiring plan to increase their sales force, if I can transform people's lives because I've given them the ability to take personal sovereignty into their own hands, for me, that's success. I love that. And I think that having that sort of motivator is, you know, very powerful in terms of driving you to continue to strive for continued growth, for continued scaling, right? And, and work very hard because I think when there's inter- an intersection of wanting to simply, you know, dr- grow a successful organization and business, but uh, in service of having that sort of impact, which, you know, obviously um, there's a level of altruism to it, right? In yes. terms of helping people, I think if that is uh, very genuinely, authentically what is driving an individual, then in this sort of circumstance, it really helps propel them forwards. And yeah. I think that that's an important thing, understanding and being very candid and I guess transparent with and authentic to yourself, as well as to your organization and your clients around what that motivation is, right? Yes. Because I think it's it's okay also to have a motivation and a motivating factor that is not as yeah. altruistic. If your Absolutely. MO is to make money yeah, and me. to make money for your client, right? Well, yeah. then lean into it, own yeah, yeah, yeah. it, and have yeah. that be your authentic motivator, right? Yeah. But if you're in this case, right, motivator is I want to help impact people's lives or impact people's businesses through what I'm able to do and connect folks um, to those opportunities, then I think that the way that you wear it on your sleeve and clearly channel it is what kind of fuels your success. And I think that it makes a lot of sense and is a really important thing for people yeah, to walk and I away think with. That's what fuels the culture. You know, if, if an entrepreneur is listening today and they're, they don't know which way to go with their culture and their values, start with that question you've just asked me. Start with the end in mind and then work backwards with your values and your culture because the culture that we have at Citrus Connect today is all because we want to help our clients grow and we want to change people's lives. Yeah, I I love that. I think that's a really interesting way to flip it on its head in terms of how to figure out your next step or what your career path, you know, in fact may be. Um, And in general, you know, I've really appreciated this conversation. I think there's an enormous amount of learnings and values for people to walk away from this and apply it, whether to a corporate career or to their own entrepreneurial journey. So, you know, I would really just love to say thank you for the time. I would, you know, love the opportunity to reconnect some point in the future to see where you and Citrus Connect have kind of grown to and evolved to, because this has been an absolutely fantastic conversation. Thank you. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.